Well, this morning we continue on in our sermon series in the book of Genesis, and uh, we announced last week we'd be in chapter 19 today. We did send out an email uh, this week, and this is another important reason. If you've not yet filled out a guest card, welcome card, you're now on the email. Good idea to get on it. It helps us communicate with you, but want to make sure if you didn't see this, we sent out an email uh, this week uh, giving some instructions, noting that this chapter, chapter 19, contains some sensitive subject material. And I wanted you to be in mind, particularly parents in mind of that, as children are here in this service, uh, that you could both prepare children who would plan to be here during the sermon, but as well if you'd prefer to have your children uh, in the children's ministry or in the grove, I uh, wanted to make sure you were aware of that, gave you a heads up. So still giving you the heads up, last heads up now. Uh, if there are still spots remaining, you're welcome to go down there now and check those out and put your children uh, in the children's ministry or the grove this morning. With that, let's take an, another moment to bow and pray as we prepare to hear God's word. Lord, we pray you'd humble us this morning, that you would draw our eyes to how awesome you are, Lord, that we would be caught up in the wonders of your love this morning, Lord, that as we look at a picture of justice, Lord, that we would walk in fear. For those who know you, that we would appropriately be comforted by this passage and reminded of the mercy that you show in preserving your people until the end. We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, on April 18th, 1775, Paul Revere made the most famous ride in American history. A midnight ride on horseback from Boston, Massachusetts to Lexington, Massachusetts, sent to warn John Hancock and Samuel Adams and other American patriot leaders that were in hiding there. And on that ride, he cried out an announcement, a very brief announcement, an urgent announcement that has lived on in history. Many of us learned early on in grade school the four words in his famous announcement. What are they? Pop quiz here. The British are coming. Four words that we remember that we've learned at a very young age, an urgent announcement. The British are coming. It was an urgent announcement given to save lives, to ready a defense, and to prepare for victory. So when we hear the name Paul Revere, you likely think of that phrase, the British are coming. It's just what is ingrained in our minds. Well, I wonder what comes in your mind when you hear about the names Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're familiar with the Bible, the teaching of the Bible, and you look at Genesis 19, I wonder what comes into your mind when you hear the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. I think it should bring to our minds a very important and urgent announcement. You see, Genesis 19 is a, a chapter in Scripture that we should remember. Of, of all the chapters in the Bible, it should be one that would draw our minds to a very important announcement that is made for all people here. And while this chapter looks back on a real moment in history, this is a historical narrative, this, this really happened, this chapter also looks forward to a moment that is yet to come, that surely will come at the end of human history. You see, this chapter looks forward, and Moses, the narrator of Genesis, he, he actually used this to prepare God's people, Israel, that were wandering in the wilderness, to prepare them for the future judgment that will surely come one day. And so this story about Sodom and Gomorrah, it serves as an announcement to all people of what will happen at the end of human history. We find an announcement here that a day is coming that God will punish the wicked, and we find an announcement that God will preserve 
his righteous people. There's kind of two narratives working together. They form one narrative, but two parts to that narrative. This is a story of God's judgment. It's a story of God's mercy. And let's consider both of these this morning in Genesis chapter 19. Go ahead and turn with me now, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 19. Uh, We're on page 13 in your pew Bibles, if you want to take that and follow along. This is a long uh, chapter here in Genesis, so the best way to stay engaged is to follow along in your copy of God's Word. As we look this morning, I mentioned there's sensitive subject matter here. Uh, When you're committed to to expositional preaching, which means we're just going through books of the Bible, uh, then you really can't avoid hard chapters. So it's not like uh, I sat together with the elders and we thought a couple weeks before Thanksgiving, uh, what should we do? Sodom and Gomorrah. I know, Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's do that. But no, we're just going through the book of Genesis, and that's where the Lord has us this morning. We would do well to consider the truth of His Word this morning. Let me read for us all of Genesis 19 as we begin our time together. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. So they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city The men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. I'll only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or, or anyone you have in the city, bring them out of the place. For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. 
Behold, this city is near enough to flee to it, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there's not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make, for our, make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. And the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn, a son, and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Well, that's a long passage there in chapter 19, but if you trace back to the beginning of chapter 18, the book of Genesis slows down. Moses, the narrator of Genesis, he takes time here. And the beginning of chapter 18 was the beginning of a long day. Abraham was approached then by a group of three men revealed to be the Lord and two angels. And that was midday. They, they shared lunch in chapter 18. And then they walked toward Sodom. And as they walked toward Sodom, the Lord revealed his plans to judge and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding nations. Uh, we thought last week that it, about Abraham petitioning the Lord and, and asking the Lord if he would spare the city if there were even ten righteous people to be found there, which the Lord confirmed. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. He would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Well, that day continues to unfold here in chapter 19, where we see the two angels arrive in Sodom in the evening. Now, it's significant that this section slows down so much in Genesis. I mean, chapter 1 through 11 was just like history and fast forward, covering all sorts of generations very quickly. And here we see things slow down, and there's something that we need to slow down and catch and understand. There's a two-fold purpose here that we need to get of why God sent these angels to Sodom. He sent them on a mission both to rescue 
and to destroy. We see a picture of mercy and justice. And if we are to know God and to worship Him as He has revealed Himself, we should know Him as a merciful Father. But we should also know Him as a holy judge. And these two roles are not in conflict with one another. They don't contradict one another. Rather, it's a beautiful picture of how God has revealed Himself. There is no one like Him. Try as you may to be merciful and just, which we should. There's no one like our God. Perfect in holiness. Merciful and just. Jesus, the Son of God, revealed to us one who was perfectly merciful, loving everyone He came into contact with and was just followed God and obeyed Him in all that He did and laid His life down to be the one through whom we would be justified and made right with God if indeed we would trust in Him. So brothers and sisters, don't miss that God's judgment and His mercy were displayed here in this awesome way that day in Sodom. And also consider that this day in history, in Genesis 19, it serves as an announcement for all of history that God's judgment is coming. Well, the main idea that I want you to see this morning, if you're taking notes, you want to write this down, the main idea is this. Live today in light of that day when God will surely punish the wicked and preserve the righteous. Live today in light of that day when God will surely punish the wicked and preserve the righteous. As we make our way through this entire chapter this morning, I want you to see three scenes of wickedness here. The three scenes, kind of the, the narrative and the story unfolds. Remember, this is real history recorded, and we're going to trace through these three scenes. The first scene we find in verses 1 through 14. Wickedness Confirmed. It's the first scene in verses 1 through 14. Wickedness confirmed. Well, in chapter 18, we saw that the Lord assured Abraham that his justice is based on full, a full account of the truth, full and accurate information, every detail examined and, and known. And as a demonstration of that, the two angels were sent down to Sodom to confirm the wickedness in the city. Now, this wasn't to, to fill God in. Certainly, God knew everything. He knew exactly what was going on there in Sodom. But rather, this shows in the story that God's justice is indeed based on a full and accurate account of the truth. Now, we read in verse 1 that as soon as the men arrived in Sodom, they found Lot sitting at the city gate. Now, the city gate was a place where respected members of the community would gather. They would gather there at the city gate, and they would conduct business. And this little detail is important for us to get. You know, we're going to trace this theme throughout the story in this chapter, but, but this detail of Lot standing at the gate is the first clue that we see that Lot, a righteous man, was growing more and more comfortable living in a wicked place. A righteous man living amongst the, the wicked, becoming more and more comfortable doing so. So if you trace Lot's movement in the book of Genesis, back to Genesis chapter 13, when he separated from Abraham, he chose the land that was pleasing to the sight. He, he went by sight away from Abraham. He was connected, remember, to the Lord through Abraham. 
blessed through Abraham, yet he went away, and he moved towards Sodom. And at first we see him dwelling in tents outside of Sodom, but we see his movement kind of uh, regressing, so to speak. He went from living in tents outside of Sodom to here we see him living inside the city, and even sitting at the city gates, seemingly having some sort of standing there. In other words, his life had gotten more and more intertwined with a wicked place. Now we see in verses 1 and 2 that much like Abraham had done for this group of men earlier in the day for lunch, Lot did for them for dinner. He bowed down, welcomed them, offered them hospitality, providing them a place to rest, to wash their feet. He prepared a feast for them and unleavened bread for a meal. Now notice no one else in Sodom greeted them in this way. In fact, they get a much different reception from the people in Sodom later. But Lot reaches out and shows hospitality like he should. And like Abraham, it may have been that Lot didn't recognize them at first to be angels, but likely saw them as traveling men who were in need of hospitality. And we see in verse 3, Lot insisted on them spending the night in his home. And the story helps us know that this wasn't merely to give them a more comfortable place to stay. Rather, Lot knew how wicked of a place Sodom was, and he was trying to protect them from the evil that would come upon them there in the city. In verse 4, we see why Lot pressed so strongly for the two men to come inside and not spend the night outside in the town square. Notice that in verse 4, all of the men in the town surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And that detail serves to confirm that outside of Lot and his two daughters, there were no righteous people in Sodom. All had given themselves over to wicked and heinous acts. Continuing on in verse 5, this group called for Lot to send the the two visiting men outside. And the phrase in verse 5, it it reads that we may know them. That that, that word to, to know, that indicates sexual intercourse. So this group was gathered to do sexual violence. They were there to rape these visiting men. Now the name of the city Sodom, and we thought about this last week, it provides the base of the word sodomy or or sins outside of normal sexuality. Sodom was, was known for rampant sexual perversion. Homosexual practice was the norm there. They were going against God's natural design. Now, the Bible is clear, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that homosexual acts are sinful. One of a number of places in the Old Testament, we read this, is in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. We read there, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. In the New Testament, we read that Jesus define marriage and sexuality the same way. Because some people hear this and they think, well, yeah, that's the Old Testament. And yeah, like Christians, you are maintaining kind of these traditional sexual ethics. Society's progressed. And you look at the Bible, Jesus, he didn't say anything about this. And if anyone's told you that, if you heard that, you need to know that that's not true. Jesus very clearly spoke on this in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 4. He defined marriage and sexuality the way that it's defined in Genesis at creation. In Matthew 19, 4, Jesus said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so Jesus affirmed marriage the way Genesis does, as a permanent relationship between one man and one woman. He defined the natural context for sexuality being between one man and woman given in marriage, and that marriage is the only permissible context for sexual expression. Where else are you going to hear this in society? Where else would you go today in Charlotte to hear something like this? Increasingly, this is being something that's being treated as if, if you preach something like this, you're, you're hateful. If you preach something like this, you must be against people. Brothers and sisters, I maintain to you, this is the truth that is so clearly revealed in God's Word. It's the truth that God's people in the Old and New Testament have always believed and always affirmed. There is something very good and beautiful and right here that we are called, as God's holy people in the church, to uphold to a watching world around us, to bring God glory. And I understand that sometimes when we find ourselves increasingly, I think in this society, living as the righteous in a dark place, in a dark world, we will have to stand on the truth of God's Word and say, this is what the Bible says. We cannot edit God's Word. We don't have the authority to edit God's Word. His Word doesn't need to be edited. It's perfect. His Word is unchanging. His Word is authority over all people and all cultures and all times. This isn't Western culture. This is biblical truth. This isn't Puritan values. The Puritans value this because this is the truth of God's Word. And as God's people, let us see the beauty of what is contained here in the pages of the Bible. Throughout the New Testament and continuing on here, the teaching of the apostles is consistent in these same sexual standards, describing homosexual acts as unnatural and dishonorable to God. Romans chapter 1, verse 26. Apostle Paul says, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So we see the witness of the Old Testament and the New Testament together, the ministry of Jesus and his apostles, all of God's word maintaining a consistent witness here, helping us understand that the men of Sodom gave themselves to dishonorable passions and shameless acts. The sexual immorality and homosexual practice in Sodom, it it grew and it escalated even into sexual violence and the grave evil of, of rape, which is why Lot was so adamant about the two men not staying the night in the town square. Wickedness and violence was confirmed here in a terrible way. Wickedness and violence characterized all the people of Sodom. Well, in verse 8, we see that as the mob moved in on the two men, Lot offered up his two daughters in their place. One of the many things probably you read this week that made you scratch your head said, well, what do you make of this? Well, some scholars, they speculate that because his two daughters were virgins who had been given to marry men in Sodom, that they would not be harmed. I'm not convinced of that, though. Off a plain reading of this text, the way that verse 8 reads, Lot was offering his daughters in place of these two men being taken by the mob, telling them to do what they please to his daughters. Now, while it was good for Lot to protect these men and not save himself, remember, he, before you, you don't understand this, before you go in too hard on Lot here, which he deserves to be going in hard on a couple of things, but before you, you kind of misjudge the situation, first see, he was the only one there willing to protect them. 
And when his own life was at stake, meaning he could have very easily just said, okay, take them and I'll go on about my night and day. He didn't. He sought to protect himself. That was good and to be commended. What he goes from there, uh, what he does from there takes a different turn in the wrong direction. While it was good for Lot to seek to protect these men, it was wicked for Lot to offer up his daughters instead. He should have sought to protect his daughters here. So when you read the Bible, you will often have to distinguish between what is prescriptive and descriptive. It's an important part of understanding the Bible, interpreting what's happening here. What's happening here is not prescribing commendable behavior and saying, well, that's a good thing to do. Rather, it's describing what actually happened. This is a historical narrative. It's presenting what actually happened, and it's describing this as a bad example. It's describing Lot's behavior as lacking faithfulness to God and showing, indeed, his judgment skewed as he got more and more intertwined in a wicked world. He should have sought to protect his daughters. I'll read in verse 9 that this mob would have nothing to do with Lot's attempts to protect these two men. Notice they remark, this fellow came to sojourn. Sojourner, he was traveling through. So Lot was a temporary resident of the city. He was not one of them. He wasn't a sodomite. He didn't have citizenship there. He was sojourning through. And this detail highlights the theme I mentioned earlier. Lot was sojourning, yet in his passing through, he and his family were getting more and more entangled in this wicked place. Well, you may wonder with the scenes of Lot unfolding in this chapter, it can be somewhat confusing to tell, is this guy really righteous? I mean, he shamefully offered his two daughters up to the mob. And what good father does that? That doesn't sound like a righteous father. That doesn't seem like noble behavior. Later on in the chapter, we see him reluctant to leave the city. He's given God's mercy and told what's going to happen. And he's just kind of hanging out, wanting to make himself breakfast. No urgency to get out. Even after he was saved from judgment, we see later on this scene, he's getting drunk and craziness going on. This guy was righteous? Well, Scripture helps us interpret scripture. It's the best way to interpret scripture. And in the New Testament, the apostle Peter looked back on the story of Lot, and Peter referred to Lot as being righteous. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, if it weren't for this passage right there in 2 Peter, we might doubt if Lot was a believer at all. I think that makes it clear that I don't think there's really any debate about it. Lot was counted among the righteous. Three times there, Peter referred to Lot as righteous. And and therefore, God rescued and didn't sweep him away with the judgment on Sodom. Now, keep in mind, righteous doesn't mean right in every action that you do. Certainly not commending all the actions he did there as righteous. We see a lot of unrighteous things that Lot was doing. Righteous does not mean without sin. Rather, the righteous are those who believe God. The righteous are our believers. And the concept of righteousness in the book of Genesis is tied into the covenant. Abraham was declared righteous by his faith. And so was Lot. Lot was declared righteous by his faith. He believed God. And 
while Lot clearly here did not have the level of godly character that Abraham had, he shared in Abraham's faith. Like Abraham, he was justified by faith in God, and therefore he was counted and numbered among the righteous. So what we read here is of a righteous man who lived surrounded by wicked men. He went from living near Sodom and in a tent to living in the city, standing at the gate. In other words, he had assimilated into life in Sodom. And you've probably heard the phrase about living as a Christian in the world, not being of the world, like living in the world, but not being of the world. Well, as Lot lived further and further in Sodom, he started to get further and more and more entangled in the world. Now, to be clear, his life isn't depicted, again, with the absence of righteous behavior. I mentioned earlier, he was the only one there to show these men hospitality and to seek to protect them. Later on, he goes to warn his sons-in-law. So we certainly do see some righteous acts there in the life of Sodom. And I think the best way to understand that he was a righteous man surrounded by wickedness. And can't you relate to that in the Christian life? Again, I think it gives us a warning. It gives us a warning as God's people called out that we live in this world, but we're not to live as we belong to this world. We are sojourning. We are passing through, and we need God's grace and His help to guard our hearts from getting intertwined with sin and wickedness. When we read through Genesis 19, what stands out to us most, it might be God's judgment. But don't miss God's mercy here in this chapter as well. While the angels were sent by God to destroy the wicked city, they were also sent there on a rescue mission of mercy. The first rescue is in verse 10. The two angels rescued Lot and his household from the mob of wicked men, striking the mob with blindness. And and notice this didn't stop the mob from trying to get in. Rather, they kind of kept groping or, or clawing. And this was a moment, if you think about it, it was a moment they could have repented of their sin. They had never experienced anything like that in their lives before. Trying to get those two men, all of a sudden they're blinded. Yet living in their unrepentant and hardened hearts, they continued to move towards sin. The rescue mission continued to unfold in verses 12 through 14. And as a warning was given to Lot about the coming destruction, that God would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked, God was rescuing Lot there. The angels gave a clear warning that provided an opportunity for all of Lot's family to escape the judgment that was about to come on Sodom. So the pronouncement of impending judgment was unmistakably clear. So this wasn't like an an ambiguous kind of message. It was urgent. It was clear. Two times in verse 13, the angels declared they were about to destroy this place. Uh, Again, we see the word outcry. In verse 13 that we also saw in the last chapter, the Lord sent them to destroy the city because the outcry against His people has become great before the Lord. Now having seen the, the wickedness confirmed in Sodom, I think we better understand what the Lord meant in chapter 18, verse 20, when He told Abraham the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very great. The wicked violence of Sodom, it was brutal. It was oppressive, leading to an outcry of distress from the oppressed. And while the offer of mercy and escape from judgment was given to Lot's family, there were members of his family who rejected the offer. In verse 14, we see that Lot approached his sons-in-law who were to marry his daughters. Now think about this, first of all. His sons-in-law, were they a part of that large mob outside the door? Well, yes. All the men of the town were gathered there, young and old, all of them. So we'd understand, based on that verse, there's four 
they had all come to barge through Lot's door to do wicked violence to the two men. These sons-in-law, I would understand, are a part of the group that had just been blinded by the angels, hardly a normal experience, but they didn't think anything was wrong. Their soon-to-be father-in-law coming to them, warning of destruction, they took it as a joke. This was an opportunity for them to repent, to turn away from wickedness, to turn away from the world and to be saved. And they thought it was a joke. They laughed. I wonder if you take the judgment of God lightly like that. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, we, we are glad you're here. You're welcome to be here every Sunday. We hope you come next week. We'd love to continue to tell you more about who God is and who He's revealed Himself to be in the Bible and His Son, Jesus. Uh, but I wonder how you think about the judgment of God. Do you have a laugh almost like not believing that these Christians really think that? Like, huh, you really think, like, I'm going to be judged for myself. I'm not that bad of a person. Like, you really think this is going to happen at the end of all time? Well, people still laugh today. They think it's crazy that God would judge people. Again, we said last year, maybe really bad people like Hitler and Osama bin Laden, maybe they get judged, but the average person in Charlotte, come on, like we're good people. We're just trying to do our best here, trying to live our best life now. Well, Jesus clearly taught in Matthew 25 that he will come again in glory to judge. He will distinguish between the wicked and the righteous. And it is important that you understand which group you're a part of, the wicked or the righteous. Jesus is going to distinguish and separate between the goats and the, and the sheep. And in Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus said, and, and these, the wicked, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So I think this is a moment this morning, if, if you're here not a Christian, to ask yourself the question, does God know you as one of His? You might know something about Jesus. You might know a lot about Jesus, but does Jesus know you as one of His? Do you belong to Him? Jesus is the only way that we can escape God's coming judgment. We won't escape God's judgment by trying to correct our course when we leave here this afternoon and try to be nicer, kinder people. We can't possibly repay the debt that we owe God and His holiness because of our sin against Him. Christians are not people who are just trying harder to please God on that last day. We're people that are trying to please God because we first have been set free from sin and the power of sin over us. We've put our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. We trust in the name of Jesus and in the forgiveness that is brought to anyone who would turn and trust in His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead for new life in Jesus. And if you've come this morning, and you want to know more about what it would look like to trust in Jesus and get right with God, we would love to talk with you about that. We say this every week. Talk with someone who invited you this morning. Talk to one of the pastors at the top of the ramp on the way out. Talk to one of our members that's seated around you. It's urgent. It's important for you to know how you could get right with God today. Well, in verses 15 through 29, we find a second scene of wickedness. Verses 15 through 29, scene two, wickedness destroyed. Wickedness destroyed. Getting Lot out of Sodom was more difficult than you might have guessed. Kind of like a parent, maybe one of you parents this morning, trying to get your kid up out of bed and ready and out the door to come to church. These angels, as morning dawned, were urging Lot, get up, get, get ready, get your family, get out of here. You would have thought maybe this wouldn't have taken so much effort. 
I mean, again, they had just told him this place is going to be destroyed tomorrow. They presented an exclusive offer to him and his family to escape. But Lot didn't have any sense of, of urgency. You might have guessed, like, how could you even sleep that night? Like, how could you lay down your head on the pillow? We see the phrase in verse 16, but he lingered. He was piddling around. This was a lingering of uncertainty. Though he was righteous, he had started to get entangled in the present world, and he seemed uncertain, even hesitant, about getting out. Well, playing around with sin and hesitating to obey God is what lingering and evil looks like. And I wonder for you, Christian, this morning, what does it look like for you to linger around in sin? It's easy to be hard on Lot as we look at this. Maybe it's important for us to be hard on ourselves. How often are we hesitant to obey God? How often do we linger around in sin? As Christians, we believe that God sees and hears everything. As Christians, we believe that we will give an account before God on the last day every good or bad thing done in the flesh. Where is the urgency reflected in our obedience? Where's the urgency reflected in our our service, in our worship of God? How often are you hesitant to obey God? Brother and sister, we must guard against an attachment to the world where we grow hesitant to obey God and linger around in sin rather than turning away from that lustful thought. We, We linger. We're hesitant far too often to spend time in God's Word and all too ready to waste our time on meaningless affairs and debates. We're far too hesitant to spend time in prayer and far too ready to go about our lives and make things happen on our own strength and power. We're far too hesitant to turn away from discontentment and envy. And far too often we look at the world around us and maybe even get bitter that God hasn't provided for us the things we see people around us enjoying. Lot, he lingered here when given a chance to obey We see his sins, they were many, but the good news here is God's mercy was more. The credit for Lot's salvation from this judgment is certainly not to be given to him. Left to himself, he was lingering. Left to himself, he was hesitant to leave. No urgency, not ready to obey. Yet as an act of God's mercy in verse 16, the angels seized Lot and his family by the hand, rushing them outside of the city. I love that picture there. Christian, consider how often the Lord holds you by the hand. We can confess that we are far too hesitant to obey God. We confess that too many times we linger around in sin. We confess that far too many times, rather than standing out as God's holy people, we'd rather just blend right in and be comfortable in this wicked place. There's good news here. Praise God that he leads his people. Praise God that we're not left to ourselves. God still leads his people by the hand today. In fact, our confidence is that he sees to our obedience. He strengthens us for every good work that he calls us to. This picture of leading us by the hand is a picture of God sustaining us. In fact, the only way we'll make it to the end, the only way we'll continue to persevere in obedience and worship of God is if we are preserved by him walking us by the hand. 
Well, verse 17 through 22, it's an interesting scene. A lot of interesting scenes here. But verses 17 through 22 is an interesting one. While Lot acknowledged God's favor and kindness in saving him, he still doubted that he would finally be rescued from the region. So he doubted that he could escape to the hills as commanded by the angels. Again, what's impressive in this chapter is not Lot's faith, certainly not Lot's resolve, certainly not Lot's endurance. What's impressive here? God's mercy. Lot was instructed to leave, to escape to the hills, but he didn't obey that. He, in fact, doubted he could even make it to the hills. In verse 20, he, he suggested to escape to a, a small city that was actually set to be destroyed. The picture here is a slowness to obedience. He requests the city to be spared from God's destruction for his own sake. That's why he mentions twice kind of how little of a town it is. Like, God, let me stop here. It's just a little town. You see how little it is? Well, in reality, this place was wicked as well. One that was going to be destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. A lot didn't deserve this request to be answered. And if you put yourself in the situation there of answering it, you might say, Lot, suck it up. Keep going. I don't want to hear that. Keep on going up to the hills. You were given your orders. Follow them. But notice God's mercy here. Lot didn't deserve this request to be answered, but in chapter 19, while we see a chapter of God's wrath and judgment, another narrative is unfolding here, a story of God's mercy. Lot asked to be able to escape to this city, and God mercifully granted the request, saying in verse 21, I will not overthrow the city of which you've spoken. Zoar, which means small, was spared because of Lot. And as God had shown in chapter 18 with Abraham's petition, this city was spared because of a righteous man. But with Lot and Zoar, God's judgment rained down. Verse 23, Moses, the narrator of Genesis, made it clear this wasn't just some sort of natural disaster, like a volcano that just happened to erupt at that time, and this was just an explanation given for this volcano that destroyed a group of people. No, God's word makes it clear the burning sulfur raining down from the sky was divine judgment. Repeatedly, we read this was judgment from the Lord. Verse 24, then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire, from the Lord out of heaven. And just like with God's judgment in the flood, no one survived. Not even what grew on the ground, the vegetation, it didn't survive. Everyone that was left in the city, everything in the cities were destroyed by God's judgment. Notice that there was one who had been given a path of escape, a a merciful provision to get out, who ended up suffering judgment as well. Lot's wife. We read in verse 26 that Lot's wife, she looked back and she became a a pillar of salt. Now, I I had the opportunity to grow up in children's Sunday school and grow up with parents knew the Lord and going to church. I heard about this story a lot. It seemed kind of crazy, like, boom, she just turned into a pillar of salt. Maybe in a first glance, it sounded a little bit harsh, like, you know, was this just her kind of booking it out of there and she's hearing stuff and like, I want to just get a glimpse of this and turns around and boom, she's turned into salt. Well, well, no, it seems like it's a lot more than this. Her, Her looking back, was disobedience. This wasn't just a quick glance. This was actually a turning back, saying given the choice between salvation with the Lord or a world, this present world, she looked back and chose the present world. Her looking back was disobedience, and it reflected the condition of her heart. She wasn't ready to leave. She didn't want to give up the present world. In fact, Jesus, again, helps us understand the story in Luke chapter 17, which Emily read for us this morning. Luke 17 in the New Testament, Jesus mentioned Lot's wife when teaching on the final judgment. In verse 31, on that day, let 
Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Based on what we read from Jesus in the New Testament, Lot's wife was judged and she died because she was not wanting to leave her earthly possessions. With the choice to follow God or follow the world, she turned back and identified herself with the world. And she suffered God's judgment. Jesus' point here was uh, that her refusal to flee God's punishment needs to be a warning to others. Uh, Remember Lot's wife, Jesus said. The treasure of God's people is not here on earth. Don't get too attached to this world. It is passing away. Your treasure is stored up for you, Christian, in, in, in heaven. And whoever turns away from this present world and building their life upon it and loses his life will keep it in the end. Well, verses 27 through 29, the scene shifts back momentarily to Abraham. Verse 29 shows us that Lot was saved on account of Abraham. As God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Now, we've seen this phrase, God remembered, before in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, where God remembered Noah. You might expect this would say God remembered Lot, but it doesn't. It says God remembered Abraham. Well, what does that mean? It means this, through Abraham, Lot was blessed. I think it means God answered Abraham's prayer from the end of chapter 18 in saving Lot. God answered Abraham's petition. The principle had been established in chapter 18. The Lord our God would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. The judge of all the earth will do what is just. And we see an answer to that petition. God remembering Abraham and rescuing Lot. Now being told this account of the destruction of Sodom, it would have reminded God's people back then, the nation of Israel wandering around in the wilderness, it would have reminded them of how serious God's judgment is for sin. Yet through Lot's story, they also would be instructed to not become like the world around them, to not become like the nations surrounding them, to not become like the Canaanites and give themselves to wickedness, that such wickedness deserves God's judgment. And I think this story gives a warning today to God's people in the church. As God's holy people called out of this world, we're not to look like the world around us. Our lives are not built on this present passing world. We've been shown that we can't build our lives on anything this side of heaven. Rather, our lives are built on the righteousness of Jesus Christ and knowing God and living in a relationship with Him. The full passage there of Luke 17, starting in verse 28, is Jesus instructing His disciples to not cling to this present world. In verse 28, says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. It's pointing forward, future announcement. Verse 31, On that day, let the one who's on the housetop with goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Jesus is saying, look at Genesis chapter 19. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life 
will keep it. Brother and sister in the Lord, would you ask the Lord for his help this week to guard your soul, to guard you from an attachment to this world? Isn't that what life in the local church is all about? That together we're, we're locking arms on this path to heaven that God has prepared for us? I've heard it put that the local church is a ministry where we are helping each other make it to heaven. God's already secured our future, to be sure, but the race is not yet finished. And God has been so gracious along the way to fill us with His Holy Spirit, to give us other people filled with His Holy Spirit, that we would together guard against evil, guard our hearts from being attached to this present world, and run this race set before us through faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the third and final seed of wickedness in verses 30 through 38 is wickedness retained. Wickedness retained. The closing scene of this chapter doesn't get any brighter. This isn't like a story that ends and everyone was doing awesome and like the sun came out and it was a new chapter of a new day. You might read this and think, wow, what feels redemptive about any of this? Verses 30 through 38, the closing scene, we see some disturbing material that shows how much life in Sodom had affected Lot's family. We see here similarities from the story of Noah and his family after the flood. In both Noah and Lot's stories, after judgment, they got drunk. After judgment, their children sinned against them. After judgment, their their sin is seen to have consequences for future generations. Here, Lot went out from Zoar. He lived in the hills and in caves. Caves were a place for refugees to live. They were kind of living in isolation. And in verse 31, it seemed that the, the, the daughters feared isolation would keep them from finding husbands and having children. It was very important for their security in that time uh, to have husbands. It's important for their security to have children who would grow up to protect them and provide for them. They could see their father was getting older. They're living in caves. Where are the eligible bachelors in those caves? They're not there. And in that time, they would have needed that security of offspring. And so they came up with a wicked plan. They got him drunk. They abused him. And they were impregnated. And he was so drunk, he was unaware of it the whole time. You see, life in Sodom had rubbed off on them. This was clearly unrighteous behavior being described here. The sin here was a type of wickedness retained from life in Sodom. Imitating the wickedness that had just fallen under judgment. Well, the connection at the end of the chapter is that the children that came from these pregnancies became the Moabites and the Ammonites, rivals of God's people in Israel. These were a people that would be known for their idolatry, for their lewdness, and for evil. One commentary put it like this, as difficult as it was to get Lot's family out of Sodom, the danger remained of getting the mentality of Sodom out of Lot's family. Brothers and sisters, again, this is an announcement for the church. It's an announcement for the redeemed, those who have been set free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin over us, those who still deal with the presence of sin and struggling with temptation and evil. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, I've heard it asked before, is this verse in your Bible? 1 John 2, 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Well, Lot, he came to Sodom to sojourn. 
but he ended up getting attached to Sodom. Brother and sister in Christ, we're a lot like Lot. We're God's people living in a wicked world. Lot was not a citizen of a citizen of Sodom, he was just sojourning through. We're told that we're not citizens of this passing world. We're just traveling, sojourning through. We're a lot like Lot. We're told that our citizenship is in heaven. We are just passing through. In fact, the Apostle Peter later says, consider yourselves Christians as aliens, strangers, exiles, living in a foreign land. Well, brother and sister, I wonder if you think about this life like that, that we are just sojourning through. We're just passing through. By God's grace, our identity is not found here in what we can see around us. By God's grace, our life is not defined here in what we see around us. This life matters, meaning we've been freed by God to live a life bringing Him glory, to enjoy Him, to worship Him, to follow Him as His disciples and the truth. But our life is not to be intertwined with this passing world. And we're called to guard against the presence of sin and not get entangled in sin here this side of glory. You see, like Lot, it's easy for the righteous to start getting too comfortable in the world. And I wonder where it is that you and I are getting too comfortable in this present world. I wonder what temptations are calling for us to get attached to. I wonder how often we want the Christian life to be Jesus plus something else. And Jesus plus the perfect spouse. Jesus plus the awesome job. The 3,000 square foot house. Jesus plus my dreams and ambitions. Jesus plus this awesome life that I want to build for myself. Jesus, don't come back until I build this life for myself here. Once, once I know that, experience that, have had all that, well then, come Lord quickly. How often do we find ourselves thinking like that? Well, this whole story serves as an announcement, an announcement of what is to come. The judgment of Genesis 19 foreshadowing the final judgment. And if we are to live in wisdom and live in ways that honor God, by God's grace, we must heed the warning given here. That as God's people, we would live today in light of that day. That's actually Martin Luther's phrase I took there. He said there are two days marked on his calendar, today and that day. The present day you and I are living in, God woke us up this morning. He sustained our life this morning. We're alive only because of him. And God's people are those who by his grace want to live today in light of that day. And we would do well, like Martin Luther, to have two days circled on your calendar. Most of us don't circle things on the calendar anyways. We highlight Google Calendar. So highlight your Google Calendar two days today and that day. May we be those who fear God and give Him glory for His hour of judgment comes. May we be those who look forward in comfort and confidence that while we understand that God will judge the wicked, while they will perish, that God preserves the righteous. May we be those who flee from wickedness by God's grace, and may we be those who proclaim to the world around us that while there is still time to repent and believe in Jesus. May we be those who celebrate God and praise Him and are filled with joy today because we know what He saved us from. We know what we couldn't save ourselves from, and we give God the glory through what He's done in Jesus, that it was finished upon His cross, sins forgiven, 
righteousness counted as ours, a relationship, a loving relationship with God in this life and in the next. Let's bow and pray. Father in heaven, we're in need of your help. Lord, we're in need of considering this passage of Scripture and understanding this passage and living in wisdom and light of it. Father, we're in need of you cultivating spirit of fear of you in us, of reverence before you, of awe at your holiness and your majesty. And Lord, we're in need of you reminding us of your love and your faithfulness to us. Lord, we're in need of you holding us by the hand and leading us and guiding us forward. So we come this morning, Lord, and ask that you would lead us, help us to grow in trusting you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.